Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast. Your host, Dr. Joe Tata, leads the conversation around the way pain is treated in the U.S. and around the world with experts from the fields of medicine, physical therapy, nutrition, personal development, exercise, psychology, and more. Each week, you can listen to receive free information about ways to treat and reverse chronic persistent pain. Now, here is Dr. Joe Tata. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Healing Pain Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Joe Tata. It is great to be here with you. Many of you who follow this podcast know that the treatment of chronic pain has been placed under a microscope because of the fallout from the widespread opioid epidemic. And as we turn away from using opioids as a treatment for long-term pain, what many of you want to know is what are the alternatives? What are the non-pharmacologic or non-drug alternatives for pain management and for conditions so common such as lower back pain? Today, we will dive into that very topic as you meet our three experts, Dr. Stephen George, Dr. Corey Simon, and Dr. Adam Good. But before we begin, it's important that we review some of the many reasons why the topic of non-pharmacologic pain care is so important. The reason why this is so important is that despite the steady rise over the past few decades of prescription opioids as a frontline option for pain management, the evidence is lacking for its effectiveness in the long-term treatment of pain. And the evidence we do have about long-term opioid use overwhelmingly supports that chronic opioid therapy has harmful consequences for one's health. And if you are a regular listener of the Healing Pain Podcast, many of you have heard these statistics before, but it's important to share them as they provide some context. The current data on opioids tells us that from the year 2000 through 2015, there was a 0.28-year loss of U.S. life expectancy due to drug overdoses that were primarily opioid-related. In 2016, more than 42,000 people in the United States died from an opioid overdose. In 2017, the Department of Health and Human Services declared the ongoing opioid crisis as a public health emergency. And each day, more than 1,000 people are treated in emergency departments for misusing prescription opioids. To help support those with pain and to address the opioid crisis, The American Physical Therapy Association has advocated for safe pain management through its Choose PT campaign. And in May of 2018, the Journal of the American Physical Therapy Association dedicated an entire special issue to the non-pharmacologic treatment of chronic pain. And if you're interested in reading that edition, I'll link to it in the show notes. It's volume 98, issue 5, from May 2018. The co-editor of this special edition is Dr. Stephen George. Dr. Stephen George originally appeared on the Healing Pain podcast in episode number 56, titled The Importance of Embracing Psychosocial Factors of Pain. Today, Dr. George is back to speak with us, and he is joined by two other physical therapists and researchers, Dr. Adam Good and Dr. Corey Simon. All three are licensed physical therapists, educators, and researchers studying the conservative treatment of pain at Duke University. On today's podcast, you will learn about the effects of a home-based telephone-supported physical activity program for veterans with chronic low low back pain with Dr. Adam Good, 
Dr. Corey Simon will share his research called A Paradigm Shift in Geriatric Low Back Pain Management. And Dr. Stephen George will share his research on advancing psychologically informed practice for patients with persistent musculoskeletal pain. As always, if you're new to the podcast, let me take the opportunity to welcome you to the tribe and encourage you to subscribe to the mailing list by going to www.drjotata.com forward slash podcast. When you sign up, I'll send you the latest podcast to your inbox each and every week. Okay, let's get started and let's meet Dr. Stephen George, Dr. Corey Simon, and Dr. Adam Good. Hey guys, welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast. It's great to have you all here. Hey Joe. Thanks. Hi. Hello, thanks for having us. So I want to have all three of you on because you all have great pieces of work and research that you have published in Volume 98, Issue 5 of the Physical Therapy Journal. To my knowledge, the first journal that we've had where we talked about non-pharmacologic management of pain. And, you know, I definitely want to give each of you a chance to talk about your great research today, but I figured let's start with you, Stephen, because you co-edited the issue for the month there. So give us like a behind the scenes shot of how it came to be. Sure. Happy to do that. And I think obviously there was awareness of the chronic pain issues and the opioid crisis and lurking in the background. And actually, Arlene Greenspan, who is the other co-editor, made a suggestion to Alan Jetty that we should do a special issue. And it was interesting, her motivation, she works at the CDC. So her motivation was, it kind of coincided with the CDC guidelines that were published, I think, in 2016. And she wanted um, to make sure that our journal addressed that appropriately. So she kind of kicked it off. Alan, of course, was very supportive and they needed a co-guest editor and they asked me to do it. And having not learned my lesson, I was involved with another special issue in 2011 on psychologically informed. I said I would do it. It actually picked up steam pretty quickly. And then the debate really was how to format the special issue. Do we do only invited pieces or do we do more of a general call? And we decided to do a model where we would have a general call. And we had a really good response. I think close to 50 people or groups replied to the, the first call. And from that, we called them down to some that were invited to do full papers. And then we called those down to the ones that are in the issue now. So it received, but probably not too surprising to everyone listening that it received pretty broad support. We have enough expertise for the people that gave them good reviews. So Arlene and I really had a nice job of being able to provide some overall vision, making sure that the papers that were selected in the end met the original call and some of the things we brainstormed. And overall, I think they did a really nice job. And just for the record, when we're talking about Corey and Adam's papers and Especially, it's worth noting to the reviewers that I wasn't involved in the review of their papers at all because we are at the same institution. So that was definitely respected the process. And I, I do think it's worth mentioning for people who maybe aren't as familiar with the editorial process that we really listen to what the reviewers have to say and we really try to minimize conflict of interest. And obviously, having people from the same institution. It's great to have a podcast like this, but I don't want people to get the impression that I was the one who made the decisions on Corey Adams' paper because I, I wasn't. <laughs> yeah. 
No, it's a good point. I mean, obviously, the three of you do musculoskeletal and pain research at Duke and as well as you teach at the PT school there. So it's a good point to make. Just give us a kind of a current state of what's happening in the physical therapy world as far as non-pharmacologic interventions. From my perspective, I think the awareness of that is at an all-time high. I think physical therapists, as they should, are embracing this concept of being non-pharmacological pain providers, and that's really encouraging. I think hopefully it's encouraging physical therapists to think a little bit more broadly about how they apply these and maybe not be so focused with providing one of these and beginning to understand that really it's probably a full range of these types of treatments that we're going to be able to offer folks. I think also there's been a lot of thought about where we're going to be positioned to provide these in earlier. It seems to be better, at least in the early health services studies. And what's nice is a lot of people outside, for one of my first times in the profession, a lot of people outside PT are really thinking about ways to position, you know, patients or people seeking care so that they are aligned to get these services earlier than they would in a more traditional model. I think also we need to, as a profession, and that's what Arlene and I tried to display in our editorial, our profession needs to be enthusiastic and embrace this, but also look for opportunities to to realize that this is just kind of a phase one of an era that's probably going to take the next five to 10 years to really flush all this out. And phase one is going to begin and end with opioid, opioid prescription rates being controlled. And you're already seeing those controls are being made because that is a relatively easy thing to fix. I'm not saying it's easy, but I will be interested to see what strategies and approaches develop after that. Once we lose that original focus on that, on impacting opioid prescription. Yeah. Stopping the stop opioids is one thing, but, um, you know, changing primary care and other pain provider habits to prescribe other non-alternative things, uh, physical therapy obviously being one of them is going to be a, as you mentioned, it's going to take longer, maybe upwards of five years to really get everyone on board. But hopefully with work like this, it'll happen a lot faster. Stephen, you have a paper in there um, titled Advancing Psychologically Informed Practice for Patients with Persistent Musculoskeletal Pain, Promises and Pitfalls. Can you talk about just the promise of that? Could you talk about the promises and pitfalls? Let's talk about the promise first, because both Corey and Adam talk about the psychosocial aspects in their paper. Sure. Well, I think this was one of these things already alluded to. This was one of the things that we wanted to link back to the 2011 special issue because this idea of psychologically informed practice, there's been a lot of interest in it since 2011, um, and some of it predates 2011, but I think that was a term we coined in that special issue, and you see people using it more and more in the literature. And I think the promise really is it's as good as we have right now of a model to manage people with chronic pain or with pain conditions because it really focuses on incorporating the person's beliefs and their thoughts and their behaviors into the care episode in a way that's you know constructive and useful and structured and not quite as focused as thinking that all of their problems are related to one single impairment, physical impairment, because those are we can identify those on people that have long-standing pain and don't. And so I think the promise of it really is getting providers that are comfortable thinking about adaptive ways to address those beliefs, thoughts, and behaviors um, and move the management 
into kind of a more middle ground or even a patient-centered. And I think it's going to be a key to transitioning to self-management, which a lot of people think is going to be a very important part of pain management in the long run is activating um, people and and encouraging them to be confident in self-management approaches and not view that as a punt, but view that as this is part of the process, just like we do with diabetes and some other conditions. There's a role the provider has, but there's also a role the patient has. And I I really think, you know, psychologically informed approaches, the promise of that is to help us transition from that the provider is going to fix you to now this is more of something we co-manage and you have a responsibility. Yeah. And there are so many different types of psychologically informed approaches that a therapist can use. And as you mentioned, the PT profession is picking up on them more and more day by day. But with research like this, I think it really helps knowing that professionals, PTs included, can be slow to change. What are some of the pitfalls that we face as far as a profession? We spoke about this briefly on your first podcast. Right. So it's kind of like maybe the top challenge you see. I think the biggest pitfall right now is, in, as you mentioned, getting people willing to change their, their, their management models philosophically is a big one. And I think what we're beginning to realize is finding appropriate ways to train providers at the scale that is needed is really probably the main pitfall. There are going to have to be changes in the way that we deliver education. And part of that is going to be divorcing by medical model, finally, and embracing these skills that a lot of people use, they call soft skills or non-essential skills and realizing they're, they are an, an integral part of it and, and deserve our attention during training. And that includes during entry-level you know, training. But to me, that's the biggest pitfall is just we don't have the training models and programs that can do it at the scale that is needed. Okay, excellent. So thanks for getting us started. I'm going to kind of pass the baton over to Corey. Great. So Corey wrote a paper called A Paradigm Shift in Geriatric Low Back Pain, Integrating Influences, Experiences, and Consequences. And this is an important paper because we have about probably three and a half million people turning 65 each year. So we have a lot of people with back pain already, but more people that are a little bit older we're going to have back pain. Tell us about the objective in your paper. Yeah, so it actually started back in the social media universe. It was about a year of following different arguments and, you know, how that world can get a little contentious. My co-author and I, uh, Greg Hicks, started talking about it only because while we are completely on board with a lot of what Steve is saying, specifically psychosocial influences, what we noticed was there was a tendency in some arguments to hitch to that argument almost exclusively. First time I saw that was from a group that will remain nameless, but it was about the fear avoidance model and how that really explained chronic pain amongst older adults. And as Steve knows, that was one of my arguments in my dissertation work was that it does not, in fact, it falls short in older adults because many older adults do not avoid, they actually try to confront. So it didn't explain the older adult experience. Now, that said, there are many things that are in the psychological realm that do influence pain amongst older adults, but there are other things, and we touch upon those in the paper. This includes energetic inefficiency, your body's ability to modulate pain as you get older, it decreases. There is a heavy social part to an older adult's pain. So the goal of our paper, the objective of our paper, was to kind of introduce these or maybe just review them so that uh, we didn't run the risk of and shifting, as, as Steve mentioned, it's important that we're not in the 
the biomedical realm anymore. But if we shift too far, we start to lose focus on some things that actually do influence older adults or as you get older are still an influence. So that was one thing. And the other thing is, is when you're talking about pain, it's very easy to focus solely on the pain reduction. Now, that's the beauty of psychologically informed practice. It's more about enhancing function and reducing the influence of pain on function and quality of life. But it goes pretty far with older adults in that pain can influence physical function decline or decrease physical activity. In turn, that brings the potential for other issues, morbidity and ultimately mortality downstream. So it's very important not to just focus on pain, but consider all these other things in the older adult life that you have to consider mainly their physical activity and their, and their quality of life. The one thing I really appreciate about your paper is that it really broke down the biopsychosocial model and it really gave attention to all three parts, which I think is really important. I mean, the psychosocial aspect is perhaps new to physical therapists. So there's a little bit of a, as you mentioned, kind of a lean in that direction. It's like the, it's the new black, if you will. But speaking specifically about low back pain in older adults, talk to us about the bio first. What are the biological changes that are happening in the aging population that can contribute to back pain? Yeah, so the first thought that the mind immediately goes to degenerative changes, and certainly degenerative changes do occur. But you run the risk of thinking that those degenerative changes explain the pain experience solely, and that's not the case. In fact, there's a lot of research that suggests there's individuals walking around with uh, pretty crummy images that have no pain or have less pain. So that doesn't explain it solely. So you have to consider all facts. And, and one of those is pain modulation. So the way that our body processes pain, there are senescent changes. So, and we touch upon them in the paper, but even though your threshold increases, your body's ability to modulate actually decreases. So you have a sluggish pain processing system. Um, and it's different from person to person, but it's definitely something that you need to consider. Another thing we touch upon is hip pathology. And, and my co-author, Greg Hicks, research is really leading this in that we're understanding more and more about how the hip and the back interface such that individuals that have weak hips or painful hips, in addition to having low back pain, run the risk for physical function decline. Yeah, really important. And you also meant, you also touched on sarcopenia, which I mm-hmm. think even, even in the realm of physical therapy, I don't think it's something like we test strength. In clinical practice, we don't really have a good way to measure sarcopenia. Yeah. And Sarcopenia, this is where I think as I entered into aging research and as geriatric specialists know, you have to consider all these other factors. But what I started to learn was that the sarcopenia is about declining mass. And really, what we, we more so talk about is dynopenia, which is de- decreasing strength, right? But either way, those factors related to muscle morphology as you get older can influence the body's ability to be mobile. And if you think that pain and mobility are separate, you're fooling yourself. So that's really where, you, like you said, you have to consider how mass and strength declining with age may interface with the patient's pain condition and ultimately lead to problems down the road. Interesting. And then the social factors, which I think out of all the research I've read around pain and chronic pain, I think it gets the least amount of attention. But you spoke about low provider confidence, which I thought was so interesting because if you walk into the average physical therapy outpatient clinic, there's a high percentage of Medicare patients there. So you would think that practitioners would have confidence in dealing with that population, but there seems to be a little bit of a question there. 
Yeah. So I think this goes back to what he's talked about moving away from the biomedical model. I think a lot of it could be explained with historically practitioners being grounded in a biomedical model. And if you think of pain and consequentially functional decline in that way, when you try to address, say, pathoanatomy in the spine and you don't get the outcomes that you expected, it makes sense that you would have lower confidence in your ability to treat, right? So I think that will change as we start to think from more of a biopsychosocial perspective. But the research is there that shows that as a whole, clinicians are not confident in their ability to treat older adults with low back pain. In addition to that, it actually borders on tragic because there are still clinicians out there that are prescribing bed rest or declining. If you have pain when you're trying to move, then don't move. Well, that's the worst thing you could do. That is a problem. And then the third thing that I think we talk about is how the priorities and goals of older adults and the clinician, um, they aren't aligned often. And so if your goals and priorities as a patient aren't matched by your clinician, then that's going to decrease the likelihood that you're going to seek out care uh, or maybe even recover. I don't know. But those are three major problems right now. But I think the big thing out of all those three is we need to get away from the, well, as you get older, you're going to have pain. It's inevitable. Yeah, it is inevitable, but in some ways, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to have chronic pain. It also doesn't mean that we have to go down the route of having physical function decline. And you certainly shouldn't be telling people to move away from activity because that's really the worst thing you can do. Yeah, all great points. So after you publish this paper, if you read it today and you look over it, how has your view of low back pain in that population changed or did it change after the research? I don't think it changed. A lot of that is kind of been bubbling up, but at the same time, it really does parallel what Greg and I are doing in, in aging and re- or I should say, uh, research in older adults with low back pain. So it was complementary to what we're trying to do. Uh, Adam is, is doing similar. And so I think that it's just, I think trying to, to provide a common voice for physical therapists as to what are things we need to consider in older adults with low back pain? What are some unanswered questions? Because by no means is the paper, it's a review and by no means does it answer everything. It just provides some suggestions as far as measurement and management. But where do we have to go next? And so I think that it, it may be, if anything, did highlight some areas that we need to consider moving forward. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, you mentioned Adam. So we're going to bring Adam into the conversation. So Adam, what I liked about your paper is that you did something that is very innovative and you leverage technology. So the title of your paper is The Effects of a Home-Based Telephone-Supported Physical Activity Program for Adult Veterans with Chronic Low Back Pain. Telemedicine is, is very new. We're just starting to really see how it works. I think most research is probably around diabetes, but we're now starting to shift over into the chronic pain world. Tell us about the study, the three groups that you have designed. Sure. Well, thanks. This actually started before I really met Steve and Corey in this work a few years ago. And the setting is in the Durham Veterans Administration, so the VA, so it's all veterans. And when we were writing the grant, it really was before the telemedicine, telehealth boom. I don't even remember that we even put those that terminology in the grant, but that certainly has been a venue for um, and increasing opportunities for research. And we were interested in, in older adults and physical function and preventing physical function decline. And so a group of the health services researchers at the Durham VA and I decided to join forces and really think about 
how can we increase physical activity among older adults with chronic low back pain? And like Corey had mentioned, this is a susceptible group to functional decline and even more susceptible with chronic low back pain. We wanted to leverage some technology, as you mentioned, with a telephone-based program. Everything was home-based in a home-based setting. So the veterans would come in for one visit with a physical therapist, and then they would get a home exercise program. And we would support that program through periodic phone calls throughout the 12 weeks. And we also utilized a exercise counselor to add to that program with a little more often phone calls to progress their exercise program. And we did include three different arms to the study. Uh, There was a physical activity only group, uh, physical activity plus cognitive behavioral-based therapies, and then a weightless control. And it was a pilot, as Corey mentioned, this is a kind of a a new unresearched area. And so we wanted to to see what the effects would be if we would implement such a program among veterans. And and so we were able to complete the study last year and had really good enrollment and follow-up. And so we were very pleased with how it came out from a fidelity standpoint. And so, and this is an area that, as Corey mentioned, is, is something that um, I think is a musculoskeletal conditions in older adults and studying process of care and rehab is a really a good opportunity, especially in chronic back pain. So, of course, people can read the paper. I'm going to link to all of your papers in the show notes. But can you tell us a little bit about the physical activity group and how it differed from the cognitive behavioral therapy for pain group? Sure. The The physical activity group, that group, if they were randomized to that group, they would receive a physical activity, a structured exercise program that was delivered on at baseline when they came in to see the physical therapist. It was fairly tailored to how they presented during the physical therapy examination. However, the exercises were pretty straightforward. The techniques were something that we typically do in a physical therapy clinic and so forth. It's just something they would be able to do at home as well. And so that group got a structured program. Sometimes it was tailored if they were just able to do some of the aspects of the physical activity program may start at a lower level and then progress as the physical therapist and exercise counselor could progress them along. And so they also got a, a DVD, which was a, a low-impact exercise program. It was really designed for knee osteoarthritis, but we used it as a low-impact exercise program. They could follow along with a DVD as well. The physical activity program was also tailored to where they presented when they came in. It could have been as simple as walking five minutes down their driveway to going to the local high school track to do laps to doing some type of a treadmill or stationary bike. It was their choosing. So that program was the same. The physical activity program was the same with the physical activity group and the physical activity plus cognitive behavioral-based therapy. So those, the physical activity wasn't different between those two. It's just if the individuals were randomized to the to, to get CBT as well, the cognitive behavioral-based therapy, they received additional phone calls that were tailored to specifically CBT for pain and how they could manage their pain with respect to their exercises they were doing. And so that was delivered by the exercise counselor who had been cross-trained to deliver the CBT for this study, but also some other previous studies as well. Mm. Interesting. 
I guess uh, as a PT, I'm curious why the PT didn't provide the CBT and you chose the exercise counselor instead. Right. So we've had those questions. That's a good question. We've had that before. And, and I think that from a standpoint of how we, from our stakeholders in the VA health system, we were trying to optimize a delivery of an intervention without utilizing a provider to an extent where it could, it should show some value in what we were doing. And so we had done this before with some other studies with knee osteoarthritis. And so we wanted to utilize a similar mechanism where we could take this different type of provider and use their skill set to deliver that without taking away from provider that may be less able from a time standpoint and effort standpoint in that health system. Right. And I guess because physical therapy is in-demand service, I guess, in the VA system. So right. that helped with the, the kind of need, basically. What was interesting is that the CBT plus the PA group didn't do much better, I guess you could say, just in, as far as layman's terms goes. Right. Yeah. And so we had initially thought that that group may have an additional benefit from having the CBT. And we really didn't see that effect when we looked at between group differences with CBT plus physical activity when compared to the physical activity alone. Physical activity alone did do a little bit better than those that they got the CBT as well. And it was against what we initially thought would happen. It's not against what others have found in other studies, but in this group, we thought that they may have an additional benefit. There are several reasons we thought of to explain that, but one of the bigger things is that it was a pilot study. It was a little bit of a smaller study that the CBT wasn't a robust, full-blown CBT type of event. It was a very packaged CBT for pain type of event. So there are several ways that could explain that. But then again, others have found that those groups didn't do as well either. The other thing you mentioned was the physical activity group may have done better because they really just, the patient had to just focus on one thing. Yeah. It's so interesting to me from a patient perspective as well as a professional perspective as well. Yeah, that was one of the things that we, in context to the particular subgroup of older adults, one of the things that it may have been is that they were receiving just one phone call from the exercise counselor that was very condensed, very focused. How are you doing with their exercises? Do you need to change them? And so forth. And so they were really just focused on that throughout the whole 12 weeks. The other group were receiving longer phone calls and then switching back and forth with the PA and the CBT. So that could explain some of it, but we're really not sure exactly from this type of study. And I think that some of our stakeholder feedback from the patients, that they all seemed to like the phone calls, which kind of surprised me a little bit, but they all felt like they were, could have been more and longer and so forth. So it's hard to tell. It really is from the pilot. Yeah. Patients like support. Do you have plans to do a larger study of similar type? The senior author on the paper is a health services researcher at the VA, Kelly Allen. And so we've talked about some different ways to move it into a larger study. Some components of it are actually in a study that Steve and the VA are doing now. And so a, a larger pragmatic study. And so to some extent, we've moved that along. We're still thinking of different ways to bring that into larger study and what context that would look like if it would be more related to a rural health type of thing because you know it is a distance type of opportunity but but we're still working on it so i want to ask the three of you a question this this may put steven on the spot just a little bit but when you look at that journal and i'm sure you guys are familiar with the 
topics in there and the articles and the information. What do you feel is missing? Obviously, it's a journal, so it's, it can only hold so much information. But do you feel like there's anything that was missing from that pivotal edition? Yeah, that is putting me on the spot. <laughs> we got to the point, we were very grateful for what we had. The authors that we that responded and, and made it through peer review that just produced some strong, diverse work. I think from a design perspective, if you say, and this is not meant to be ungrateful to any of them that are in there, maybe having another trial, another randomized trial, we did get some good responses on some of the health services research, which I think do a really good job of describing the effectiveness. But for for some people who are really concerned with rigor and controlling for biases, there's no substitute for a well-done RCT. And, and Adam's you know, study was a very strong one, more in the pilot stage. And then there was a, the group from Belgium provided a really strong trial on the pain neuroscience education. It would have been nice to have another one like that. I really thought the perspectives turned out well. Uh, you know, I'm kind of racking my brain to think of you know a perspective that would have added, but I think we were pretty happy with that. So maybe another data-driven paper looking at efficacy and maybe another type of cohort study. I think one of the things we learned in doing these, though, is data studies have their own timeline. And if your results aren't right, so to speak, and when a call goes out, that's not the fault of the author. It's just bad timing. So I don't know what Corey and Adam think was, was missing from it, if anything. Um, certainly acknowledge it's not comprehensive. I think it's a great start. I think, I think especially the forward thinking, I think a lot of the models and things that were in there maybe were not viewed as center of practice, but more pulling it in a direction. And you know, that's some of the, the early, but more vocal feedback maybe was, you know, uh, why didn't, why wasn't there a review of the existing literature? And I, I kind of feel like we didn't want to do that because there have been some high-level reviews and clinical recommendations and wanted it to be more forward-thinking. That part is missing, but I don't think that's something that I would have looked to add it. I think I, I wanted it to make maybe make people feel like this doesn't look exactly the way practice is today, but that's, that's good. You know, I didn't want it to be reaffirming too much. We wanted it to be push a little, and I, I think it met that. So what do you guys think, Corey and Adam? Did you, what, anything that you thought was missing? Well, I think to your point, exactly, that if you were to think of it as almost as a baseline, because right now we're seeing the emphasis on non-pharmacological treatments and the emphasis on studies for those, that if this was the baseline in five or 10 years, you would see some more robust type of studies that issue would look a little bit different, quite a bit different with, right. you know, I can think off the top of my head, several different studies ongoing that would hit those benchmarks at five or 10 years that make that issue completely different. And like you said, a little bit more robust in the trial design. So you know, I think it, it's a, and it's also one of those, like you said, that our study wrapped up three or four months before the call came out and it was almost right on time and so forth. So it's a little bit of a timing part, but I, I thought everything in the special issue was really fun to read and, and informative. And I don't think that there was really anything I could think of that was missing. But in the future, if you were repeated in five or 10 years, you would see a, a, little, a quite a bit different of a, of a journal, an issue. I'd say. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. I echo both Steve and, and Adam's points. I think clinical trials, very important. There can't be enough because there's obviously we're not exactly optimal in our care for chronic pain conditions. So those in large-scale outcome studies specific to non-pharmacologic management are appreciated. And I think that will continue. The one thing I think is missing, and I hope I'm not misspeaking, I didn't see it, but similar to what we're working on one end of the spectrum of the lifespan in a perspective of measurement management for older adults, similarly, there is a lot, and actually a lot that we don't know, uh, for pediatric uh, conditions. And so I think that's missing. My colleague up in Cincinnati Children's, uh, Chris King, and I have talked a lot about this. We're actually working on a pediatric migraine paper because just as little as there is in the one end of the spectrum of the lifespan, so too is the case in the other end of the spectrum in pediatric pain conditions. So perhaps that, but perhaps that, perhaps this will push that. I don't know. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. The pediatric part, you know, wasn't. So knowing that pain research and, and pain science is starting to kind of move forward at a, a bit of a faster speed than it has in the past two decades, let's say. I mean, you guys, the three of you are on some, you're very attached to universities and the physical therapy programs. What do we need to do as a profession to make sure that the research is getting into the PT programs at a program level so that graduating therapists will have some of the skills and knowledge ready to go? Well, the first thing, and I think that this is happening, Kathleen Sluka group and IASPs push as far as standardizing pain and PT curriculum is important. Steve was part of that. That's happening as we, as we move forward, and I think more and more institutions are adopting that. That's an important thing from a pain perspective. As far as evidence is concerned, I mean, I think it's funny. We and I've been in part of a few institutions, and it felt like it was a real push to just throw everything into it. And now we're kind of taking the opposite approach of pulling it back because we have to make it digestible for the clinician. We have to make it that usable, that they're going to use it. And so... What is the minimum data set that we need to make sure that we are still on the front line of care and pushing and translating research to, to, to clinical practice, but at the same time not inundating and, and burning out clinicians who already have a very, very tough job? And so I think it, if we can get it at the bottom level of the entry level for uh, students, that they understand how to digest that literature and use that literature, it's fun to them. It really keeps their practice new and innovative, the better. And actually change the paradigm of, oh, it's evidence-based practice, which I don't know much, maybe the, the nerds on this call, but it's not usually the most favorite thing for students to learn. There's a few in each class, but usually it isn't. If we can make it that for the most part is at least tolerable, the better we'll be. Yeah, I think along those lines, that's definitely the curricular response and the program response. I think the other thing is, and I think Adam has modeled this well, and there's some others around the country, also building practice models so people can see what this is going to look like too. Because if we're still sending lots of students into models where the PTs maybe aren't operating in a progressive way or the way that maybe they're they're going to be doing in five years, it's hard to overcome that. So some of the models of working directly with primary care or even being an entry point, making sure um, that those of us are active in working with teams and think the VA collaboration that um, Adam mentioned, 
which he and Corey are involved in, by the way, we basically co-opted some of the team. I mean, it's a powerful group. It involves PT, health services, researchers, physicians, you know, there's exercise scientists. And I think this whole tension between making sure we take care of our own ship professionally, but also not repeating the PT mistakes of being insular and saying, we're going to do this in our outpatient clinics and refer to us. I think it also is going to push us to be more involved in the teams that are not only worried about the care, but what is the system that's delivering this care and how are we going to set this up, not just for the individual patient encounter, but for this whole entire population or health system of which physical therapy is going to be responsible for providing services for. So I think that's a little different mind frame. But to me, it fits along with having an updated knowledge of pain. I think that's one of the things we find we consistently bring to the teams is often where we are the ones who are most confident in bringing these updated principles and knowledge of what musculoskeletal pain is in the present and the future and helping the people who have their hands on how the system delivers it to understand what that means. So here's a question for, let's say, a practitioner, not just a physical therapist, any practitioner. So we're talking about a biopsychosocial model. And it, that model is, is a huge model, covers a lot of different areas. How does a practitioner start to look at that biopsychosocial model without feeling like they need to know everything under that umbrella? Because just, just under the bio is a lot. Right. Who wants to take that one? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, so we ran into this problem with actually writing our paper, and we ran up right up against a, a limit as far as the perspective, number of words, and number of citations, because you're right, there is a lot. Um, and I don't even know if I have an answer, but I guess I would say that to at least acknowledge that there is biological, psychological, cognitive, and social, and, and ultimately environmental influences to uh, pain. But at the same time, maybe to understand the most robust of factors in each of those areas, not thinking you have to know every factor in those areas. And with what we did was we tried to outline the major players and then the major measurements specific to older adults to measure those. Yeah, when I read your paper, I'm like, wow, there's a lot of information. But the way you listed out the measurements, I thought it was great because really a PT can just have those at their disposal or another practitioner and they can use them as a form of screening and potentially eventually for either referral or for a form of intervention. So I think that part was really useful. I think practitioners are really like that. It's laid out in a nice table. It's table one in your paper. I don't know if, any, if either of the two of you want to kind of comment on the magnitude of kind of the problem that we're looking at as far as practitioners go. you have anything to add, Adam? Well, I mean, I think that it's certainly in a busy clinic time, busy healthcare volume time, I think that it's, um, you know, breaking it down into digestible groupings is definitely a benefit. And, you know, going back to what Steve said of how to change models of care with information that we have, the knowledge that we have, and the abilities that we have as therapists, and then thinking more about the biopsychosocial model, incorporating that is a key point to allowing us to enter different care models and really break down those different components very quickly and somewhat easily to provide better care. And I think that 
what Corey has done in that paper is something to value in, in our thinking process, especially as we enter these different, hopefully enter these different care models and incorporate assessments within those different buckets, if you will, to make decisions. Excellent. Okay. And as we can, I, to- can I just add briefly, I think you mentioned, Joe, that psychosocial is kind of the most developed of this. But what happens is it becomes clear where a saturation point is. And now actually, I can make recommendations on how to assess the psychosocial that are much less cumbersome than they would have been five or 10 years ago. So I think it's also being aware that each of these areas hit a saturation point and then there is a period of becoming really efficient in measurement. And now there's psychological measures that with nine items, you can get to a saturation point. Whereas before, 10 years ago, we would have said, well, you got to do like six questionnaires to get to that. So it'll be interesting to see what other areas get that, those efficiency metrics. And I think part of it is, again, PTs have to be willing then to drop there's kind of this idea of saturation doesn't mean you're doing comprehensive of that. There is information that is enough. And if you want to go across biopsychosocial, at some point, you have to say, here's my saturation point for this category. And we're not as good at doing that. We feel like if I'm going to measure this, I got to measure it from top to bottom. So I think it'll be interesting to see what, for the longest time, imaging was kind of the biological indicator. And we now know imaging isn't but I'm sure there's going to be some inflammatory markers and things that are clinically relevant. Yeah. If I could jump in there too uh, and piggyback on that, you don't want to run the risk of, I have to have something in each cell. And I think what's a relief to, and this goes back to the psychologically informed practice, just by talking to the patient, being patient-centric, using motivational interviewing, you find out a lot as far as the influence into a condition. And so just with that, you're covering the gamut of all those things if you ha- are able to adequately and proficiently just talk to the patient. And they will tell you, if you're keen enough, of what's going on. And I think that's an important part. And that does jump into a lot of the psychosocial influences just with the motivational interview. Yeah, really, really fantastic points. So little MI skills go a long way during an initial evaluation. As we start to wrap up, can you tell everyone how they can learn more about you and kind of what you're up to? I guess maybe we could start with Steven. Sure. Probably the best way is we try to keep our Duke. I'm the director of musculoskeletal research at the Duke Clinical Research Institute. We have a homepage there that has updates on our team. Corey and Adam are part of that team. Chad Cook's part of that team, Chad Mather. And we have, we do a reasonably good job of updating that. Corey is involved in helping with our social media profile. We have a Duke MSK Twitter account. And we try to sound off when we get good news, whether it's related to grants or papers and and things like that. And we're also pretty active in conferences. So I think those are the three main venues. We remain active publishing inside PTJ and and, and importantly, outside of PTJ. So I think those are the, the main things. And we all have some projects going on now that we won't get into the specifics, but that I think hopefully will help move things along over the next five to 10 years. And is there a website where people can go and find you? Is there a URL you guys can share? There is, yeah, but I don't know I, it off the top of my <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah, we'll link, it, we'll link it to our Twitter handle, which is at DukeMSK. And I just to save Steve some grief later on, Maggie Horn Robinson is also part of that group. Yeah, thank so, you. Thank you. I knew uh, I was forgetting some other people. That's a bad, 
yeah, the the MVP. So yeah, no. So at Duke MSK, me personally is at CB Simon Physio. Those are the two that usually, if Adam, Steve, or I are putting anything out into the social atmosphere, it's going to be on one of those two hands. Okay, perfect. So I'm going to send everyone to, of course, the show notes at drjoetana.com. As we share this album, include all the links to all their papers to the Physical Therapy Journal, as well as the Twitter handle that they use over at Duke. I want to thank Drs. Corey Simon, Stephen George, and Adam Good for being on the Healing Pain Podcast this week. At the end of every podcast, I ask you to make sure you share this out with your friends and family on social media, whether it's Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. And thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Healing Pain Podcast. For more information on this episode and access to links discussed, please visit drjotada.com and click on the podcast tab where you will find the blog post for this and all previous episodes and can sign up for Dr. Joe Tata's email list to receive the latest information on chronic pain. Also, make sure to stay connected on his Facebook page at Dr. Joe Tata. 